Welcome back. This is chapter 10 of Sign of the Unicorn. It's the second to last chapter in the novel. This is an awesome chapter. With chapter 10, we get some of the most advanced, I would say, metaphysical thinking from Zelazny that we've had so far in all the books. And I think in many ways, it's kind of a prelude to the Merlin Chronicles, this chapter. This is the one, of course, in which Corwin makes his visit to Tirnanagath, and we get all kinds of associated artifacts, Grayswandir, the mechanical arm, the Jewel of Judgment, of course, and we get a taste of what you might call the ancient times, right? When Amber was being formed, when chaos still reigned, and the Pattern and Logris were perhaps more present in the lives of people like Dworkin and Oberon and the Chaos Lords. And I think Corwin's visit to Tirnanagath here in Sign of the Unicorn and, you know, the bookend of the visit that we're going to get in Hand of Oberon, I think these two bookends sort of harken back to the old days of old magic, if you will. The chapter opens with Corwin already up in the city, he says, quote, I leaned upon the rail, I looked across the world, end quote. And that's just a great image. And next we get kind of all the greatest hits from the geography of Amber to date. He mentions the sea, Amber, Arden, Garneth, Cabra, Grove of the Unicorn. And he's about to mention seeing the glittering outline of Rebma in a minute. So... Yeah, it's really cool sort of recap of all those locations that have become a bit famous for us as readers by now. And once Zelazny has established that Corwin's up in the sky looking down upon the world, he proceeds to explain how he got there. He says, quote, I had come to a place where the ghosts play at being ghosts, where the omens, portents, signs, and animate desires thread the nightly avenues and palace high halls of amber in the sky, Tirna Nagath, end quote. It's a wonderfully written sentence, and there's a couple things to unpack here. First, as a reminder, and I've mentioned this before, but Tirna Nagath is a reference to Tirna Nag, which is from Irish mythology. It means land of the young, and it's one of the names for the Celtic Otherworld. According to Wikipedia, quote, Tir Nanag is depicted as an island paradise and supernatural realm of everlasting youth, beauty, health, abundance, and joy. Its inhabitants are described as the gods of pre-Christian Ireland, who engage in poetry, music, entertainment, and the feast of Goibnu, which grants immortality to the participants, end quote. And we know that Zelazny was a student of all mythologies, particularly Irish mythology. It's invoked all throughout the series, and in particular here. And and this Celtic other world is exactly the kind of place that you can imagine swirling around in Zelazny's head as he spins the universe of, of Amber. And the second thing that's interesting here is, what does he mean by ghosts that play at being ghosts? What does that mean? I think we'll come back to that in a minute, especially when he runs into the ghost of Lorraine. But I think what he's getting at here is that visitors to the ghost city, 
will encounter people who appear as ghosts but are actually living out some kind of alternate reality. And in that sense, they're not really ghosts of the real world. They are living out their own lives, and there is kind of a parallel alternate universe going on here, and and we'll see more of that in a minute. Then next we get some more great visuals. Corwin turns his back on the world below, and he faces the city of amber reflected in the sky. And so he's facing east now, and he's looking down Amber's main avenue in the direction of the palace, which would be a westerly view in the real Amber below. So the image of the city is flipped on the north-south axis, and now the stairs are heading up and east rather than up and west. It's, it's the same as Rebma, stairs going east up into the sky, just as in Rebma, those stairs went east down into the ocean. Of course, that coordinate system will be rotated 90 degrees in the Merlin Chronicles, and we'll talk more about that in the future. But for now, we're going with the Corwin Chronicles map. The coastline is running north-south. The Great Eastern Stair goes up Colvier. You head west through the city of Amber up to the palace. But here, we're up in the sky. The stairs went east up into the sky, and now he's looking east across the ocean but down the reflection of the city toward the palace in the distance. And he says something pretty interesting. He says, quote, halls of the lords and quarters of the low, end quote. And this is the first sense we have of Amber as a city with like a class system that involves commoners. I mean, possibly this is hinted at with that old guy named Deke in Nine Princes and Amber who's going around cleaning ashtrays. But quarters of the low, I mean, that does make it sound like there's a poor class in Amber and some sort of working class and working economy. And, you know, this is an idea that doesn't get developed at all in the Corwin Chronicles. It's not until Merlin in Blood of Amber goes out for seafood in the Harbor District and, you know, he goes to Bloody Bills and all that stuff. And that's when we return to this idea of quarters of the low and it'll be like really expanded upon there and we'll come to that perhaps in a future episode but it's kind of like the the seed is planted here for the first time which is cool okay then at this point in the chapter he goes back to explain how he got here it's just you know it's a cool literary device that he uses a fair amount where he'll start a chapter sort of a little bit in the future and then he'll kind of go back and explain how he got there and continue on so he talks about how he let everybody in the family know that he's going to spend the night in Tirnanagath. He says it's, quote, reasonable behavior for any Amberite with a serious problem. I did not put much stock in the practice, but most of the others did. As it was the perfect time for me to be about such a thing, I felt it would make my day's retirement believable, end quote. And basically what's going on here is he's still recovering from the stab wound. He needs to buy some time. He tells everybody, I'm going to go spend the night in Tirnanagath to sort out some of my problems, and it's very believable. And, you know, what I find interesting about this is that it reinforces a kind of superstition that exists in the family, you know, which is like kind of an extension of the whole idea behind the Trumps. There's a bit of fortune-telling going on here. And it's interesting that Corwin, he will read the Trumps on multiple occasions. I think at least two occasions he sort of fans out the Trumps and does a reading At one point, he's pretty specific about saying, you know, bad things are in store for the family. 
So he puts enough stock in that practice of, of, of sort of the tarot reading, but he doesn't buy the benefits of Tirnanagath, where, as we will see, there are some pretty serious and pretty credible omens and actual ghost-like characters walking around. Uh, he's kind of showing some skepticism here, which is which is pretty interesting, like given that he he's fine with reading tarot cards. But putting that aside, that's the reason he's going here. And he's told Random, he's told Ganelon, uh, he's told the two of them about his long discussion with Brand. And as a reminder, he's just very recently learned about the cabal of Brand, Blaze, and Fiona, Eric, Julian, Kane cabal that reacted to that, and he's sort of getting caught up, although he's hearing it from Brand, who's telling some lies. He's telling a mixture of truth and lies. Now, Fiona and Julian are both missing. As a reminder, they've they've both fled in the middle of the night and are both now prime suspects for having stabbed Brand because they just disappeared when everybody was supposed to stick around. And that's kind of the situation in Amber when Corwin goes to visit the ghost city. Then he tells us a little bit more about the actual mechanics of Tirnanagath. He says, quote, On the highest crop of Colvier, there were three steps fashioned roughly out of the stone. When the moonlight touched them, the outline of the entire stairway began to take shape, spanning the great gulf to that point above the sea the vision city held. When the moonlight fell upon it, the stair had taken as much of substance as it would ever possess, and I set my foot upon the stone. End quote. So that's a really cool image. It's not clear if Tirnanagath appears every night that there's moonlight, or if it's only like a full moon. I'm not sure that's ever entirely explained. He then says something super interesting. He says, quote, Grace Wandir, forged upon this very stone by moonlight, held power in the city in the sky, and so I bore my blade along, end quote. And that's pretty cool. That's like the origin story of Grace Wandir, but it seems to contradict the origin story of Grace Wandir hinted at later in the Merlin Chronicles. So in Prince of Chaos, the pattern ghost of Corwin indicates pretty heavily that Grace Wandir may have predated the pattern, right? And that the pattern being reflected in the blade is often talked about that, you know, rather than Grace Wandir being sort of forged in the image of the pattern, that Grace Wandir may have played some role in the creation of the pattern to begin with. And we don't really get a lot of detail behind that. It's quite clear, and I'm sort of fast-forwarding now to the Merlin Chronicles, but it's quite clear that Zelazny had plans for the role that Grace Wandir, Werewindel, the role that these swords and maybe others sort of played in the old, old days what their relationship to the Jewel of Judgment might have been, to the Serpent, the Unicorn, all of that, the Spickards. There's a bunch of stuff in there. And Zelazny's on record as saying that he planned to go into all of that in future stories in response to a questionnaire sent to him by fans. And this is from 1978 and was published in Hellride magazine. The question was put to Zelazny. Corwin says at one point that there is a story behind Grace Wandir. What is this story? What is the magical nature of Grace Wandir? 
And Zelazny answers, quote, I will have to reserve the answers to all these questions concerning the magical weapons against the possibility of another book in which they might figure, end quote. And so it's interesting, this idea that Grace Wandier was forged on the stones that make up the steps to Tirnanagath. How would Zelazny have resolved that? Is it possible that that could be true and also that Grace Wandier predates the pattern? I think there was going to be a relationship between the swords and the spickards. Or is it that Corwin was just simply told by somebody like, yeah, the Grace Wandier was forged on the stones of Tirnanagath. Sure, here's your sword. The Oberon or Dworkin sort of didn't tell him the full truth. Either way, we can't exactly know what Zelazny had in mind, but it's kind of cool. Okay, so next, Corwin enters the city proper, and he's kind of retracing the steps that he took when he attacked Amber with his army back at the end of Nine Princes, right? He's sort of entering through that gate at the top of the stairs and then moving down the avenue. Of course, he didn't get too far in Nine Princes before his army was defeated and he was clobbered and knocked unconscious and thrown into jail. And here, he's walking on foot. He repeats the phrase, I leaned upon the rail. And that sort of brings us back to that moment at the top of the chapter. So now we've kind of connected up the timeline that Zelazny is sort of weaving in this localized chapter, chapter 10. And Corwin's also looking across the world, right? And he sees the black road from here. And he knows at this point that it goes all the way to the Courts of Chaos, and he confirms that that runs to the south. He does seem to confirm here, though, that the Courts of Chaos can be reached by going in any direction. He says a little bit about it. He says, quote, From the brightness of amber and the power and clean shining splendor of adjacent shadow, off through the progressively darkening slices of image that lead away in any direction farther through the twisted landscapes and farther still on through places seen only when drunk delirious or dreamingly silly and farther yet again running beyond the place where i stop End quote and zelazny talks about this elsewhere i don't have the direct quote in front of me but he talks about how he absolutely envisioned Amber at the center and shadows radiating out in all directions. And so I've always wondered about that. The Courts of Chaos is a place you can get to by riding in any direction, according to this paragraph here, and according to the map that Zelazny had in his head. And yet, a couple times in the series, they talk about riding south to get to the Courts of Chaos and how the Black Road runs to the south. So there's something special about the south. But at the same time, you can get there by writing in any direction. And I think also in this paragraph, Zelazny's wrestling with the idea that the Black Road is both something that Corwin helped create and the creatures on it are things that he helped in some way, right? And, and you know, this is kind of clear from his fight with the Goatman and Lorraine and, and other places. But, but that also this black road and these creatures are tied to the courts and and they kind of transcend Corwin's curse. And and it's really right here in Sign of the Unicorn that I think Zelazny's kind of setting up that, that pivot toward the damaged primal pattern at the hand of Brand and that 
that's the reason the Black Road is there, and that that's the conspiracy and the courts of chaos taught Bran how to damage the pattern. He did so, created the Black Road, opened the way for them to send their troops in to conquer Amber. That's the thing we're about to learn in the next book. And it's, again, and I've said this before, but it's a little bit at odds with the guns of Avalon and the idea that Corwin sort of opened the way for for these creatures. There's another great line in this section of the chapter. Corwin says, quote, Now I know that it is not so. Now as I stand, waiting without the courts of chaos, telling you what it was like, I know that it is not so. But I knew well enough then, that night in Tirnanagath. Had I known earlier, when I had fought the goat man in the black circle of Lorraine, had I known that day in the lighthouse of Cabra, after my escape from the dungeons of Amber, when I had looked upon ruined Garneth, I knew that that was not all there was to it, end quote. And there's a couple of awesome things about this. First, that Zelazny knows how the series is going to end, that he knows that Corwin's going to end up at the Courts of Chaos telling this story after having learned a bunch of stuff that he doesn't know now. I mean, that's pretty awesome. And, you know, the other thing here is that there's some insight that prior to all of this, kind of like the the going understanding of what happens when there's no more shadow is that you reach this place where you, you just can't shift shadow anymore and you might just die. And, you know, Corwin's going to come to realize that this is not the case. At the other end of shadow, there is the courts of chaos and a lot more to it than just the end of you and the end of shadow. But it seems that this is being kept secret from most of the kids or... Most of the kids just don't even have any interest in finding out the truth. Of course, the redheads will buck that trend and, and pay a lot more attention and study with Dworkin and all of that. But the, the insight here is that, yeah, like largely the kids of Oberon didn't really know what happens at the end of Shadow. But Corwin's going to find out soon enough. Okay, next Corwin starts talking more specifically about what he sees in Tirnanagath. He says, quote, Images of probability, might-bees and might-have-beens, probability lost, probability regained, end quote. And he's telling us that Tirnanagath is a place of parallel universes and alternate realities. And this is like the first real sense we have that something like this is possible. It kind of plays with time in a way that Shadow doesn't, right? Just like the, the basic shadow verse, if you will, Different shadows are running at different time speeds. There's time differentials between shadows, but they're all kind of like moving in one direction. And time travel is not possible. But here in Tirnanagath, we we have a real sense of alternate realities, where if time had gone off in a totally different direction, you can kind of play that out. And, And so that's just like entirely a new idea. And this is most manifest in his encounter with the ghost of Lorraine. So he comes across Lorraine, and as a reminder, Lorraine died back in the Guns of Avalon. She was killed by the guy named Melkin. Corwin was having an affair with her. They had a falling out after he killed the ghost man. She was kind of terrified of Corwin. Ran off with Melkin, who was kind of a bad dude. He killed her, robbed her. Corwin chased him down, killed him gave Lorraine a proper burial, and you get a sense that he, you know, really cared for this woman. 
and now he's encountering her ghost. Zelazny will, by the way, in Night of Shadows, go much deeper into this idea of pattern ghosts. Now, that's not what Lorraine is. A pattern ghost is an artifact that's created by the pattern when someone who walks the pattern completes it, and then sort of a copy of them is made of, of who they were at that moment in time, and the pattern is able to use that pattern ghost in interesting ways. Lorraine obviously didn't walk the pattern, so not a pattern ghost, but you know, Zelazny does seem to enjoy this idea of ghosts from alternate realities and, and goes much deeper into that toward the end of the Merlin Chronicles. Here, she's more of a projection of Corwin's subconscious in a way. Like, it's not clear if she's really living out some kind of alternate reality or if it's just all kind of in Corwin's mind. But be that as it may, she appears to be living out her own life. And she's there on a bench and she's waiting for someone. And who she's waiting for is, of course, the ghost of Corwin that she's living out her alternate reality with. But before that happens, the real Corwin is able to connect with her using Grace Wandier. And he says, quote, Drawing Grace Wandier, I raise my blade overhead where the moonlight tricks its patterns into a kind of motion. I placed it on the ground between us, end quote. And at that point, Lorraine can kind of see the real Corwin and Grace Wandier is this artifact that connects their two worlds and suddenly makes them see each other. And we'll come back to that a couple of times. So Grace Wandier is playing a really important role here, but that enables Corwin to have a conversation with this character from an alternate reality. And it's such a cool scene. And I would love to see this in a movie. I'd love to see Tiernan Nagath in a movie or a series. Like, it would be incredible. And you'd do it all with CG. And it'd be kind of like walking in a ghost city. And you'd see the ocean below you. And the characters would be kind of fading in and out. And it just would be kind of an awesome rendering. You know, she can't see him, you know, talking right past him until suddenly Grace Wandier creates the connection and you would, you know, see them both change visually and make it clear that they're now sharing the same reality. And then later the connection's broken and she goes on to hug another version of Corwin that only exists in her universe. And it's just so visual and so awesome. She says, quote, we had that argument. You followed me, drove away, Melkin, and then we talked. I saw that I was wrong and I went with you to Avalon. There, your brother Benedict persuaded you to talk with Eric you were not reconciled, but you agreed to a truce because of something he told you. He swore not to harm you, and you swore to defend Amber with Benedict to witness both oaths. We remained in Avalon while you obtained chemicals, and we went to another place later, a place where you purchased strange weapons. We won the battle, but Eric lies wounded now. Are you thinking of ending the truce? Is that it, Corwin? End quote. And this is the alternate reality you know, again, reinforcing this idea that there are an infinitude of possibilities. And it's really cool to imagine, right? Like if Corwin had agreed to Eric's terms, you know, he would have come to Amber's defense sooner. And Eric wouldn't have had to fight so hard and he would still be alive. And so this is really playing on Corwin's guilt. They finish up their encounter and he leaves her behind and he starts walking toward the palace. And we get a little bit more of this kind of palace city geography confirming the layout once again he talks about quote fountains benches groves cunning alcoves in a maze of hedging passing along the walks up an occasional step across small bridges moving past ponds among trees by an odd piece of statuary a boulder a sundial 
moondial here. Bearing to my right, pressing steadily ahead, rounding after a time the northern end of the palace, swinging left then past a courtyard overhung by balconies, more ghosts here and there upon them, behind them, within, end quote. And then he goes around the rear behind the palace to see the rear gardens, and he's coming up into the palace from behind. And if you go to my website, which should be linked in the information on this podcast. I've got a whole couple of essays about the geography of Amber, the city, Colvere, and the palace and the layout of it all. Um, but it's difficult to do that in a, in a podcast because it's so visual. Anyway, he goes into the palace. Before he does that, he actually has this moment with Deirdre that's pretty interesting and worth just touching on. He comes across this sort of area in the hedge maze and he sees two figures he says quote they part as i begin to turn away none of my affair but deirdre one of them is deirdre i know who the man will be before he turns it is a cruel joke by whatever powers rule that silver that silence end quote and i would love to know exactly what selasny meant by this and who is that other man it's most likely Corwin, and, and he knows that he's going to see himself and that he and Deirdre are, what, kissing in the hedge maze. We know that he had a fondness for Deirdre. We, we know that you know, it's his favorite sister. We also know that Fiona and Julian were romantic and wanted to be married, or at least Julian did, and Oberon was dead set against brother-sister marriages. Not entirely sure what the relationship between Corwin and Deirdre was, but they were very close. Or it could be that the other man is somebody else and that Zelazny had this backstory about Deirdre being with another man and that that's what makes this a cruel joke and is upsetting to Corwin. I don't think we can ever quite know, but it's an interesting moment. There's also the impending sunrise here, right? Random keeps yelling at Corwin over the trumps like, hey man, you're running out of time. You're running out of time. The sun's coming. And that just adds kind of an overall sense of urgency and danger to the scene and sort of like makes the pacing pick up here in this part. We get another take on the palace, which up till now hasn't had a whole lot of description. Here he says, quote, bright architecture of the mind or spirit more clearly standing now than the real ever did. To judge perfection is to render a worthless verdict, end quote. And that's just like a little snippet of how we might imagine the palace in amber. And I think that's kind of at odds with this like basic medieval castle version that we see in Visual Guide to Castle Amber. And I'll need to do a whole episode on that book at some point. And I'm... I'm writing an essay for my website on Visual Guide to Castle Amber, which was endorsed by Zelazny and is sort of an official, semi-official visualization. But I really struggle with it and think that this palace was just far more spectacular, fantastical, you know, much more vertical than this kind of like basic European castle that's presented in that book. But anyway, this is one of the few places in both series, really, that we just get that kind of emotional sense of what it might have been like to look at the palace. Anyway, he pushes on, he goes to the throne room, and as we know, he has that scene with Dara and Benedict, the ghosts of Dara and Benedict. And Dara's there on the throne, they talk, 
They ultimately fight. Benedict has this mechanical silver arm connected to the stump of a right arm that the real Benedict has. And the two of them get into a sword fight. Corwin ultimately lops off the silver mechanical arm. Because of Grace Wandir, he's able to reach the ghost of Benedict because of the mechanical arm. Benedict is able to reach what he thinks is a ghost of Corwin. And ultimately, when the sun rises and Random pulls Corwin out of Tirnanagath, he brings this mechanical arm from the ghost city back to the real world. And that becomes a big plot point going forward. And and so let's just stop and talk for a second about this silver mechanical arm. And I've got to give credit here to someone named Karen, who sent an email in 1994. And I don't have any more detail than that. But I've got this email from when, way back then, we were doing the best internet research we could to learn everything we could about Amber. But she pointed out that there is this Irish Celtic legend called Nuada of the Silver Arm. And in this legend, Nuada is a leader who can never be beaten in battle. He would have been king, except his right arm is cut off during a battle, and since he's maimed, he's no longer eligible to be king. He later gets a replacement arm, a magical silver arm, and he eventually becomes king and he rules for 20 years. And the parallels there are fascinating and super clear, right? Benedict is someone who is legendary, can never be beaten in battle, the greatest swordsman who ever lived. He's the eldest, so he could be king if he wants it, but he doesn't. He also gets his right arm cut off by Lintra, the hell maid, and then ultimately gets this magical silver arm replacement. Now, Benedict doesn't go on to be king, so at that point, there's a departure from the myth, but... It's just so awesome. Again, we know Zelazny's a student of Irish folklore. I never would have thought that this mechanical arm story, which just seems so linked to the mythology of Amber, would have been something that he pulled out of existing legends. But that's what makes all of this just so great. So many layers to this. So much of mythology was was rolling around in his head. He just must have been so well-read and so passionate about this kind of stuff. So anyway, that's the story of the mechanical arm. I will come back to one point here in the exchange between Corwin and Dara. She says, quote, I am the great granddaughter of Benedict and the Hellmaid Lintra, whom he loved and later slew. I never knew her. My mother and my mother's mother were born in a place where time does not run as in amber. I am the first of my mother's line to bear all the marks of humanity, and you, Lord Corwin, are but a ghost from a long-dead past, end quote. And so this is the first time that we get a little bit more confirmation of her lineage. You know, remember the Dara from Guns of Avalon was kind of lying to Corwin, and she said that she was the granddaughter of Benedict, so we can kind of toss that out. She was lying about everything. Here, the ghost of Dara is saying that she's the great-granddaughter of Benedict and Lintra and talks a little bit about her lineage. And then later in the Courts of Chaos, Dara, the real Dara, will confirm a bit more of this. So we can take this, I think, with some level of credibility. I will say, though, that this is very problematic for the timeline. So we're going to learn later, and it's going to be reinforced even more in the Merlin Chronicles, that Dara was part of the team in the Courts of Chaos, who 
comes up with the plan to imprison Oberon, to help Bran, to damage the pattern, right? And all of that stuff goes back a long time. We know that Bran, roughly 60 years ago, Amber Time, was hunting for Martin. At that point, he knew how to damage the primal pattern. He'd already been spending time in the Courts of Chaos. Dara and her family, House Hellgram, they're all part of this conspiracy. And it's only much later that Benedict gets tied up with Lintra, the Hellmaids, and even that we can't quite place on the timeline, but surely it should come after the damaging of the pattern that creates the Black Road and opens up all of the way for these dark creatures. You know, Brand talks about how, you know, and I've said this before, but he talks about how they, as part of their conspiracy, found a way to occupy Benedict so that he wouldn't be part of this, and that's obviously the Hellmaids. And so how can Dara be both part of the team that helps Bran come up with this whole plan, but then also be the product of a relationship between Benedict and Lintra that is born out of that plan. It, it just, it doesn't add up. And I've looked into this and just done a whole essay on it. And, you know, there are folks out there that have been playing in the Amber universe for years. There is this hypothesis that there's Dara 1 and Dara 2 that's pretty interesting. A Dara 1 that goes way back in the Courts of Chaos and isn't actually the Dara 2 that Corwin meets up with and becomes ultimately the mother of Merlin. Uh, But that starts to get into kind of speculative fiction. Anyway, there just appears to be a conflict in the timeline here. Anyway, finally, the sun, like I said, rises. Corwin says, quote, The floor beneath me wavers to and from a misty transparency. I glimpse a light-scaled expanse of water, I roll to my feet, barely avoiding the ghost's rush to clutch at the arm he has lost. It clings like a dead parasite, and my side is hurting again. Suddenly I am heavy, and the vision of ocean does not fade. I begin to sink through the floor. Color returns to the world, wavering stripes of pink. The Corwin spurning floor parts, and the Corwin killing gulf is opened. I fall." And just how cool and awesome and cinematic is that? And how much do you want to see that brought to life in a series and on the screen? And that is the end of chapter 10.